This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. This is a podcast bringing you some of the conversations from this year's Idea Fest, a two-day event at the University of Wisconsin-Madison that brought together politicians, artists, activists, community leaders, and others to talk about the big issues shaping our community, our state, and beyond. Today on the show, we bring you an interview with the author, Chloe Benjamin. Benjamin is not only the best-selling author behind books like The Immortalists and The Anatomy of Dreams, she's also a Madison resident. At this year's Idea Fest, Benjamin sat down with Cap Times managing editor Chris Murphy for a conversation about the craft and research behind Benjamin's writing, what it's been like to adapt to life in Madison, and Benjamin's recent fascination with revisiting young adult classics from The Amber Spyglass to Harry Potter. All right, I'll let Chris take it from here. Enjoy. Without further delay, let's get started. Uh, My guest this afternoon is Chloe Benjamin, a Madison author who moved here 10 years ago, uh, came to UW to get her MFA, uh, and isn't sick of us yet, apparently. Uh, Her first book, uh, The Anatomy of Dreams, came out in 2014, and it won the Edna Ferber Award for Fiction. Four years later, uh, she published The Immortalist, which uh, pushed her into the limelight in a big new way. Uh, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. It was on all kinds of best of lists that year. Uh, you were on the Late Night with Seth Meyers show. So, Chloe, tell me, how did your life change after that book came out? Really massively. <laughs> um, can you all hear me, first of all? Okay. Um, I think my life started to change even before it came out, but after we sold the book to a publisher. So usually what happens when you sell a book is that you have a finished manuscript, your agent sends it out to editors at publishing houses, and then you ideally have a deal, but it may not be for a year and a half to two years until it actually comes out. So during that time, you're doing edits, the art department is working on the cover and marketing images, Um, the marketing and publicity departments are developing their plans for pitching the book and helping it to reach a wide audience. Um, But the other thing that happened for me at that time was that I was able to start writing full time and leave my day job. Um, that was something that I had never expected. I thought that, like most writers, I would always have a day job and write on the side. I worked in social services for um, about four years at two different um, organizations, nonprofits, while writing each of these books. So I found myself suddenly able to take that leap because of the... Um, the deal that my agent had been able to secure for the second book, which was vastly different than for the first book, uh, and then began this, you know, 18-month march toward publication filled with a ton of excitement, but also a ton of nerves because I was living like a writer, but I didn't know how the book would be received. Um, So that was a totally different stage. And then, of course, when the book came out, 
Uh, it was kind of a dream publication in that the coverage we got, the excitement of readers, the events I was able to do just took off in a way that I think is pretty rare. And I know for myself, my experience that I had with my first book with the anatomy of dreams is a lot more normal. Um, you know, you do a few, a couple tours, a couple tour stops when the book first comes out, you know, you, maybe you do a few events that are local to your area area and like, Maybe you fly one place if there's a big book festival that would be a good fit. Um, but with Immortalists, I was just telling Chris, um, I immediately set off on a 17-day tour in January. Um, then I had a, a full February. They sent me back out on tour in March, and it kind of continued that way through the end of 2018. And then 2019, the paperback came out in February. And so that was another big push and more travel. So it's been kind of beyond my wildest dreams. Um, and also, like anything, even wonderful things present new challenges that you have to get used to. Um, so I'm, I'm in the midst of navigating all that. I'm guessing a lot of you know this already, but just in case you're not familiar with The Immortalists, it's about four siblings who live in New York City uh, in, a in 1969, and they go to visit a fortune teller, and she tells them the dates of their deaths. Uh, and the, the, the book then follows each of the four siblings as they approach those, those different dates. Uh, and the, the, the first one you talk about is Simon, the youngest, who... Uh, when he was, he was still in his teens, right? When that happened, he was still in his teens. He ran away from home, essentially, went to San Francisco. And this was the early 80s. And uh, I was really struck by that, 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 that part of the book. And I know, I've, I know you've, I've, I've heard you say that, 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 that other readers found that to be some of the, the most vivid piece of it, too. And of course, that's your hometown. But the, uh, the, the, the events you described, of course, were before your time. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you uh, one about researching that era. Yeah. yeah. Would it be helpful for, is anyone totally fresh to the book? Would it be helpful if I gave you a little nutshell? Yeah. Okay, great. So, um, the book follows four siblings who are growing up in the 1960s on the Lower East Side. And one day they hear of the arrival of a mysterious woman. And this woman claims to be able to tell anyone the date that they will die. So the siblings pool their allowance, and they go to see her, and they receive their prophecies. All of this happens in the prologue. Next, we zoom out and follow each sibling individually over the course of their life and looks at whether fate or chance or expectation shape our futures. Was the woman a fraud? Were the prophecies self-fulfilling? All of those kinds of things. Um, so Simon is the youngest sibling, and he's also the first sibling that we follow after that prologue. And I had a really interesting um, challenge in writing him because on the surface, he appears to be totally dissimilar to me. He's a young gay man um, who eventually becomes a dancer and um, is living in San Francisco in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, but as it happens, we share some DNA in that I'm from San Francisco and um, I have a gay parent, certainly not the same thing as being a gay man, but that community has always been really close to my heart. And um, 
and a community I've been very invested in. And then I was a ballet dancer growing up kind of until college age. So it was a really unique task to pull in what I knew, but also acknowledge and own everything that I didn't know. I knew that I could never write that section just based on my own knowledge. Most of my research into Simon's section, I didn't have to do a lot about ballet, for instance, but I certainly did have to do a lot about um, the gay community in San Francisco at that time, some of the challenges and the prejudices that they were facing, um, some of the nuances between different kinds of people who lived there at the time and identified as being on the spectrum of LGBTQ. Um, so it was, it was kind of a, a little bit of me and, and a little bit of everything else. Is that reading mostly research or were you interviewing people who were, who were alive then? I, mean, I did a little bit of both, um, mostly research, um, but reading memoir, um, you know, talk, certainly talking to some people who had lived through that time and not necessarily gay men, but nurses, people who um, were sort of on the ground in a different way. Um, but yeah, I would say mostly I tried to work with archival materials so that I wasn't asking someone to go to a traumatic place unless I absolutely couldn't find what I needed elsewhere. Okay. Your, your first book, too, I imagine involved a fair amount of research. It's called The Anatomy of Dreams, and I'll let you recap it, too. But uh, sort of the, 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 one of the, the, the central pieces behind it is that, that there is a, a researcher who is doing, uh, let's say, controversial research on lucid dreaming, trying to teach his patients to be conscious during their dreams. Um, why don't you go ahead and, and ask about that? But I, I, was, I was curious about... Uh, I mean, is, is, that, is that research that, that's actually being done, or did you, and you just kind of sort of built on that, or did you extrapolate, or, did, or, or the kinds of experiments they're doing, things that, you, that, that just came from, from, from your mm -hmm. imagination? So my first book is, um, it follows a couple who are doing experimental dream research into lucid dreaming beneath a charismatic and ethically questionable professor. And um, what they're studying are sleep disorders. So there's something called RBD, REM behavioral disorder, um, certainly sleepwalking. There's a few other disorders that can turn really dangerous if the person um, cannot wake themselves when they're on the verge of acting out something in their dream that would be really horrible if acted out on their partner or on the, whoever's next to them in bed or, or they could hurt themselves in their bedroom. So the theory behind the research that this trio is doing is that if they can apply lucid dreaming to people with these sleep disorders, and lucid dreaming is knowing that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. I don't know if anybody here has ever had a moment in a dream where you're like, wait, I know I'm dreaming right now. Um, so their idea is if you can teach that to people who um, ordinarily have no cognizance of what's happening in their dreams and any role that they might be able to play in affecting the outcome, um, then maybe you can take the danger out of these situations. Um, the, as far as I know, that's something that I invented I did not invent lucid dreaming, and I definitely didn't invent um, the parasomnias, sleep disorders that I talk about in the book. But 
applying one to the other, I am pretty sure that that was something I came up with, which has its pros and cons. I didn't invent that much for, um, uh, for the immortalists. And so in one sense, you're like, oh, I'm free. I don't have to be beholden to whether or not, you know, this was in the real experiment or, you know, um, I don't have to, I, I can use my imagination. I think there's almost something that feels a little bit on the edge of science fiction or speculative fiction about what this trio is doing. But on the other hand, you have to make it make sense. And that was hard because I, despite my fascination with scientists, and there's also a scientist in The Immortalists, I was never very good at science. I don't know why I continue to like make these jobs the focus of my work. Um, so... I, there was a lot of head banging against the wall and just saying like, I don't know if anybody's going to believe this. Um, so that was tricky. Was there anyone in particular you talked to or anyone who well, was a sleep researcher? Funny story. Um, when, that was my first book and I absolutely doing my due diligence. I contacted the UW. I can't remember if it's called the sleep center or what. Um, absolutely no reply Never, never responded to a follow-up. I was like, I get it. I haven't been published yet. <laughs> and then for The Immortalists, um, even though my first book hadn't, um, you know, gone very big, it was what we call kind of a quiet publication. Um, still people were willing, just to be able to say, I published a book with Simon & Schuster, which was the publisher for, for my first book, um, they immediately were more willing to talk to people. And now I think, you know, it's another degree more willing. But um, yeah, I, I could not. Um, I do believe that I tried to talk to some other sleep experts, um, but I honestly can't remember that, because when I was writing that, it was like close to 10 years ago. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure how many of you realize this, but a lot of that book was set in Madison. And that was really one of the things that, that, that jumped out at me about it when I first started reading it. And I was wondering if you would mind reading a passage from the book that, that, that's, that, that's about Madison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the book has two time frames. One where Sylvie and Gabe, the main couple, are um, meeting and getting to know each other at boarding school as teenagers. And then the second timeline is uh, maybe... 10 years later when they are working under their old headmaster um, who is now left to, to do this sleep research. Um, so they've just moved to Madison, um, which is their next, um, where their next funding opportunity is. And I'll tell you before I read this that um, this actually, I'm talking about where they, the house that they moved into and I found this house because I myself was new to Madison at the time, and I was riding the 10, and it was one of those funky buses that like has certain, it goes a certain line during a certain time of the day, and then it, at a different time of the day, it goes a completely different way. And so basically, I had to stay on the line when it went all the way around and came back to my stop. So I was like, all oh, right, well, this has become a scenic tour. And um, I saw these two houses sitting next to the rail tracks, and they just, I was like, that 
those are the houses of this couple and then the, their next door neighbors who they become entwined with. Our new house in Madison was a rental on East Main Street in a neighborhood called Atwood. It was a historically blue-collar district that had undergone a sort of half-gentrification. The old porn house had been converted into a theater that showed art films, and there was a little chocolatier between Trinity Lutheran Church and St. Bernard Catholic Church. But there were also wide lots penned in by wire and filled with low warehouses or nothing at all. Madison is known for the two lakes that bracket its isthmus, and Atwood felt like an island hemmed in by bodies of water. The house was square, painted a faded, weedy yellow with a steeply triangular roof. The previous tenants had left a couch on the front porch. The house's combination of shabbiness and sweetness was typical of Madison. Unless you went to the west side where the university professors lived or to Maple Bluff, the governor's neighborhood, most of the apartments looked a little cobwebby. Inside our place, the wooden floors were faded and the kitchen drawers jammed. The refrigerator door routinely got suction stuck, opening only when I braced one foot against the freezer and yanked with all of my strength. The brass door knocker had rusted to the color of tea and the light fixtures, beautiful fixtures made of decorative metal and glass, swung precariously on their cords. In Fort Bragg, we had lived in a garden apartment, half underground, that is, that Keller paid for, subtracting it out of what he owed us for work. Our place in Madison was huge in comparison. Upstairs was the bedroom, the bathroom, and above that, an attic. On the bottom level were the living room, the kitchen, and the office. Gabe preferred to work on campus, so the office became mine, a room with large windows and a domed ceiling. I loved the clarity of its shape, the sense of being tucked away in an egg, and when I left in the evenings, dazed from work, I felt like a hatchling, vulnerable and disoriented. There was one other house on our block, separated by our two driveways and patchy lawns. Structurally, it was almost identical to ours, but it had been painted violet with pink trim. The porch was strung with multicolored lights and hung with wind chimes I could hear from the office. And for most of August, that noise, along with the two recliners on the porch, was the only evidence that people actually lived there. Most of the bright floral drapes were drawn, but the curtains on the upstairs window had fluttered open, and I could see the edge of a bedside table, a salmon-colored pillow. I was eager for the sight of other people because our house was so secluded. It sat in the center of a nearly barren block. To the right was the neighbor's house, and to the left were freight train tracks, which were clearly the reason for our affordable rent. We were separated from the tracks by a chain-link fence, four feet high and overrun with wild greenery. Messy, verdant trees keeled over them from each side. The trains came most often after dark, making low, bellowing noises that kept us awake. It was almost a blessing that so much of our work with Keller took place at night. Thank you. I remember really responding to that passage when I read it. Uh, I was like, oh, she's writing about the Barrymore. I know that. I know that place. <laughs> and I thought it was really evocative, not just of what the East Side is like, 
uh, but also what it feels like when you first move to Madison and you're about th that age that they are. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you were in Madison. I mean, and what, mm -hmm. you, what, 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 what was happening with you when, when, yeah. you, when, you, when you wrote that? Well, I had moved to Madison about one year before I started work on the book. Um, and I was living on the east side. And as I was reading that, the line about kind of the shabby, sweet apartments, I was like, that's, hopefully people here won't nitpick and say, you know, that's really more on the east side, because now I know. Um, but I was kind of falling in love with the city. I, I mean, there's moments in the book that are come from the things that I was so enchanted by when I moved here, like the first snow. I'm a California native, so I went to college in New York, so got a little bit of snow there, but um, but have never really lived in this kind of winter landscape. Um, certainly the lakes. I loved walking on the frozen over lake. That just felt so magical. I'd never done that before. Um, so I think I was just exploring the city, exploring the university. There's some, um, there's some content on State Street. They squeeze themselves into a Starbucks and have a horrible um, realization when they see something in the newspaper. I just tried to kind of weave their lives into the kinds of things that I was experiencing every day. And um, so I think it's a bit of a love letter to Madison in that sense. Well, so you've been here 10 years now, though, and I'm wondering, you're a West Sider now, too. Yeah, and, newly, yes. And so if Madison were to appear as a character in a future book, how do you think you would portray the city differently at all? Mm. Well, that's a great question. And um, I will, so before Chris and I chatted last week, and he asked if I'm working on anything at the moment, and I said yes, and he said could I share anything about it? And I said, no. And <laughs> because I am very superstitious and if you've read The Immortalist, you'll know I'm not lying um, because I, I have to know for myself that I can pull off a project that's ambitious before I talk about it. But what I can say is that it, it does take place in Wisconsin. Wisconsin is very much a part of that book. Um, but now it's not just about Madison. It's really about Wisconsin. Um, so, without giving thing any, anything, without inviting the wrath of the heavens, can, can you say anything about how how your, your perception of the of the state of Madison is, is is different than it was when you first came here? Mm. I don't know that it's different. I think I just continue to be reminded that it's such a complicated state with so many layers, so many different kinds of people, um, different histories, different histories that butt up against modern approaches um politically of course it's been just so fraught and so purple i was here for the 2011 protests and remember that well and then um i was pretty involved in campaigning around the 2016 election and um got to do a lot of um campaigning on foot, talking to people, which initially terrified me. I was like, I'll only do the phone banking. I'm fine with that, but that wasn't what they needed. And so I found it fascinating that, you know, behind a keyboard, you, can, you might hate each other's guts. And then when that door opens and you're actually having a conversation, there might be room to say, well, huh, that's interesting. You know, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I still have this problem with this candidate and then for the other person to say 
I hear you on that. And, you know, I think here's how, here's my take on that. And um, those conversations were totally unlike the current um, sort of level of vitriol that's out there, um, especially online, but elsewhere. Um, so I guess this is a long way of saying I'm, I'm really interested in Wisconsin. I'm interested in the way that it contains multitudes um, and how many people here are so passionate about what they do. I think people take a lot of pride in what they do. Um, there's such an intellectual center to the university, and then there's so much beyond its borders. So um, I think I've just learned more and more. Okay. Is there a particular date or date range when we, we could expect to see something new? Oh, God. My editor would love to know that, too. I, I, I am on team um, editor. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Um, I'm, I'm sad to say it's going to be years. I mean, I'm about halfway through, and I've been working on it for three years. I don't think that the second half will take as long as the first because for the past three years, I've also been touring and promoting another book. Um, but it's a really, it's another really ambitious one. I think more than The Immortalists, actually. And so I have to go really slowly to make sure I don't make a fool of myself. So if it comes out earlier than I say, it's bad news for me, probably. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. You mentioned this a little bit earlier in passing, but you said that, that before the Immortalists came out that you were you had your, 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 your day job. Can, can you say a little bit more about what that was and how, maybe how that, 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 that shaped your work? Sure. So um, I went to the UW um, Creative Writing MFA program. That's a, their graduate degree in creative writing. And after that, I did a little bit of adjuncting at the college level, but that doesn't pay very much. So I moved into a much more high-paying field, nonprofits. Um, <laughs> and, um, but I really loved working in nonprofits. I actually come from a family of social workers and, and then there's some artists like my mom, um, all of my mom's brothers, three brothers are social workers. And then she's a, an actor and I'm a writer. And, um, it's, I think it's just, my family is fascinated by other people's stories and, and derives a lot of meaning from playing some role in um, bettering a community. Um, and so I worked first for an organization that supports ALS patients, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And then um, the place I was for the longest period of time, about two and a half years, was DAYS, Domestic Abuse Intervention Services. You may be familiar with them in town. And there I was the executive assistant to the ED, Shannon Berry. And that was an amazing experience. Um, I have so much respect for what social workers do. Um, everybody at that organization, especially in direct service, which I never did, um, you know, it's they're they're really incredible people who work in demanding circumstances. And um, of course, it's so important to get services and support to the people who come in those doors. 
So I've always um, tried to lead with empathy in my life and in my writing. And I think coming out of my experience in social services, that was only strengthened. I don't really want to write like a snide, um, in a snide, sardonic tone. Like I, I don't want it to be bland and for there to be no humor, but I want to lead with compassion and with I want to be kind to my characters while also not um, protecting them from themselves or making them out to be angels. Um, but I think just that idea of leading with compassion. Gotcha. Now, I'm, I'm kind of a, a book nerd. I always find myself reading the acknowledgments in the books after I've read one, like, even though I don't know any of those people and never will. I, and I'm not just searching to see if I'm going to be in there. <laughs> But it gets me to thinking, like, to what extent, I think, not having written a book myself, I think that people usually have the idea that it is a, a very solitary practice, but, you know, just at least being in newspapers, that there's a lot of back and forth. I guess what I'm trying to get to is, to what extent is it a team effort as opposed to, to, to just you? And what would it be like if, if it really, how much different would the books be if it was really just you? Mm. Well, that's a good question. I'm thinking about there's different stages to book publishing. So what is just me is the manuscript. I do go through edits with my agent and my editor. And what that looks like is there's never anybody writing material for the book. It's, um, you know, hmm, this, this movement in dialogue feels a bit fast. Can you expand here? Or... I'm still not understanding this character's motivation. Can you play around with that more? Um, so those are, those are the kind of edits that you'll get, which are so important to making the book better. So I do not take full credit for, um, for the product that is in front of us by the time the book goes through revisions. Um, but there's no collaborative writing. Um, where the collaboration really starts is once you've sold a book to a publisher, although you may collaborate with your agent a little bit before that um, on edits, like I said. But um, at that point, then you have, depending on your publisher, but I've been published with um, Simon & Schuster first and then now Penguin, and um, they, I'm lucky enough to have access to all of their resources from marketing and publicity to art design and sales and everything else. And so then it becomes collaborative. And that's kind of like, oh my God, you're through this solitary, like you're on the raft for years, just, you know, like continuing to paddle and you have your note, your notebook or your computer and you, people might think you're crazy. You don't know if you're crazy. Um, it's this very heady experience of like, not really having your feet on the ground, at least for me, because you have to retreat into, into your mind, into your imagination in order to follow this story and, and give birth to it, essentially. Um, and then once sort of commerce becomes involved, everything comes back to ground and it's like, okay, this is a product. It will be coming out on this date. These people are tasked with doing um, this aspect of it. This, these people are tasked with this. This is this. This is this. And it's a huge um, village that winds up making the book come out in the world the way it does. And I think especially for a book that reached the kind of wide audience that mine did, I could never, ever have 
done that. I mean, it that is just um, enormous skill and decades of connections between the publishers and booksellers and reviewers and, um, uh, you know, libraries and um, wholesalers. It's just um, a giant machine that is set in place many, many months before the book comes out. So does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So when you say that that's a collaborative process, do you mean just that you, you have to be sharing what you have to, to, to learn about all these pieces of it? Or does, does the, the, the fact of it having to do be distributed, sold in, in this, that, and the other way, does that change the, does that change the, 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 the written product in any way? The only way that the written product would change is if more editorial notes come up for some reason, but otherwise everybody's just kind of doing their piece of the pie. Um, and I should say, I mean, there are writers who don't really want to be involved in that part of the process. It might be collaborative among the publisher, but maybe the author is like, I did my edits, I, you don't really need to tell me like what the publicity plan is. You know, and I tend to be somebody who wants knowledge and education. And so I really like to understand what are, what do sales reps do? And what's the difference between this sales rep and that sales rep? And, but that's kind of personal preference. So I think maybe the publishing process for me was more collaborative than it might be for some authors who are more content to say, you know, call me when you have a cover and I'll sign off on it but I don't really need to know about everything else. Can you talk a little bit about, I know, uh, I think you, you had, if I remember right, you had a book even before The Anatomy of Dreams, which did not get, get published. Can you tell a little bit about, about, about that experience and what, 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 you, what you might have learned from it? Yeah, so um, when I first came to the MFA, I had written about half of a first book, um, well, pre-Anatomy of Dreams first book, and um, it, was a, it was really a sh kind of a novel in stories. I had read um, Olive Kitteridge, and I loved that book. I don't, has anybody read Olive Kitteridge? Yeah, that, you know, the way that the same characters weave throughout, but then there's also surprises and newness in each story. Um, so I'd written about half of that in college, and then I came to grad school and finished it and submitted my book to agents and was able to secure an agent and thought, the hard part is done. Like, at this point, it's just, they just sell it to a publisher, and, like, I did it. And she, so she sent it out to publishers, about 20, um, and it was crickets for a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. At four weeks, I was like, um, so what's going on? And, um, and my agent's colleague, who was not as, um, who was not as, I think, didn't have the bedside manner of my agent said, you know, well, if we haven't heard in a month, we're not going to hear. And I was like, it was just a total shock because nobody had told me that it's really hard to publish a book right now, even when you have a great agent. Agents want to sell books as much as authors do. And in fact, agents do not get paid until or unless they sell a manuscript. They get paid on commission. So um, that is part of their incentive. So uh, that experience was really 
shocking and humbling in a really good way for me, even though it felt really bad at the time. Because I think I was used to feeling like I was a bigger fish in a smaller pond. Um, and partly just because I had been so single-minded from a very young age. Like, I knew I was working on a novel in high school, and I was laser-focused when I was in college. And so no, I don't mean to imply that I was more talented than other people, just that I used all the time I could to create a manuscript. Um, so I, I was at first just totally um, crushed and thought, I went through the stages of grief, you know, like, you don't understand what you missed. This is going to rise from the ashes. Um, but then what I did is I started to look at the notes from the editors who had passed on it and what they said. And the more I looked at them, the more I realized they were right. That book was much more um, wedded to language than it was to plot. And I think some writers can do that really beautifully. I don't think I'm one of them. Um, it, it was sort of beautiful sentences but I kind of let myself off the hook when it came to um, saying exactly what I meant because I didn't necessarily know exactly what I meant. I think it was kind of a classic youth, too, because that would have been when I was 20, 21, 22, you know, and it's like, oh, I, I love the sound of this sentence. Who cares if I'm not quite sure what it's saying? <laughs> and that's just not going to cut it anymore. Um, so it was a really, it was a really eye-opening experience, and I'm really glad now that that wasn't taken. Sometimes people say, "Oh, well, would you want to try to publish it now that you have more of a profile?" And I say, "No, absolutely not. That is staying in a drawer." Um, not any any nugget of it, any piece of it, the the, the central idea. Nothing. There's there's definitely parts of it that I love, and I think. Like my husband, who has read all of my work, he definitely sees the through lines for all the way back to that first book um, and to the one that I'm now working on. Um, and I have, over the years, been very judicious in stealing little bits from that first book. Um, even though it's my own book, it still feels like stealing because it's like its own coherent thing. And I'm like, I'll take that sentence and that one. Um, so, but yeah, for the, I, do you, so without making people feel as though they um, should feel guilty if they haven't read The Immortalists, is there, are there people here who have? Okay, so um, there's a moment when um, Daniel is talking about how he views God and um, that was pulled from that very first um, project. So just a, if you, you might not even know the, the moment that I'm speaking about, but little, nothing is ever lost. Like I really believe that. I save every draft. I never ever would delete something that I've been working with. Even if you only go back for one sentence, or even if you only go back to remind yourself why you don't want to go back, it's all important. I, I was looking on your on your website recently and looking at, 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 at books you're reading. I saw that you're rereading Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch. Uh-huh. And I was in the theater the other day. I saw that they're making a movie out of it. Yeah. Do you ever get worried when favorite books get made into movies? Or do you always look forward to it? Oh, no, I definitely get worried. Yeah. 
because you feel so, not only do you feel possessive over the characters as the author wrote them, but you feel possessive over the characters as you imagined them. Mm. And it's so easy for all of that to be forgotten when you have the incessant in-your-face marketing of a show where you're like, you now you've seen the this character, you've seen Daniel Radcliffe 30 million times and you don't even know what you thought Harry Potter used to look like. No, no, nothing wrong with Daniel Radcliffe. Just, you know, it becomes this, um, it, it takes from the reading experience what is so essential to the reading experience, which is that one-on-one um, contact between you and the book. Your imagination is filling in the holes and the author is speaking right into your ear. Um, but that said, I think that there are so many wonderful adaptations. Um, I don't know if anybody has read Call Me By Your Name. It, I, it, it instantly jumped to my top five books of all time. I can't recommend it more highly. Call Me By Your Name. Um, a, the, that book came out something like 10 years ago, but they did an um, adaptation by... Um, Luca Guadagino, I believe, and it's just stunning, and it feels like exactly what it was meant to be, and I actually watched the movie before I read the book, um, and the book was just as much of a pleasure. Um, I also really liked the first season of The Handmaid's Tale. I've really kind of soured on it. The second season just felt so gratuitous, but I thought that they did the first season really well, so it can happen. Has, has anyone optioned any of your work for a, for a movie? Uh, yeah, so The Immortalists has been optioned for TV, um, and it's currently in the very slow development pipeline in Hollywood. Um, so unfortunately, I can't share, I'm not allowed to make an announcement until um, or unless the um, network decides that they're going to order the full series. Like right now, what it, we're in development, which means we are getting scripts to them. They'll comment on the scripts, mm. um, you know, think about um, casting, things like that. But, but nothing is certain until they make a series order, and then we get to announce. But is that a little, I mean, my understanding is that sometimes something can get optioned, but it can just sit in the, and it sounds like something is actually yes, happening. I, yes, okay. I can say that things are happening. We have a writer who is not me. Um, I decided that I wanted to stick to what I'm better at, and writing for TV is such a different animal. So we have a writer I'm really excited about who I also can't announce, but um, she's working on it. Um, the network seems excited. Next steps are for her to get them that script, and see what happens from there. But um, Do you have any, any, any qualms about that for, for having your, your work translated to a different medium or is that? Or is that really I think I'm, I'm certainly nervous, but I'm, I'm also really excited. I, it's such an honor. Like I've, you know, obviously I'm an adult of my generation and of American culture. I grew up watching TV and, um, and I think and I also just love the arts. I was an actor as well um, and a dancer during my teens and, and as a kid. And like I said, my mom is an actor. I love like the theater. I love performance. And, um, and I, I just get really excited about being able to see how they bring it to life in that medium. I think the things that make me nervous are just I can't have... I'm a, con- I'm a consultant on the project, but I don't know just how 
much veto power I have if something came down the pike that I felt really didn't represent the book well or you know like if it were me I would not have wanted that second season of The Handmaid's Tale the way that it went I have no idea how Margaret Atwood felt about it or how much say she even had Um, so at the end of the day though my name is on the book and it's not you know it's not on the show and so if the show sucks my name is not on it (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I don't want to get a new cover that has, like, the actors' faces. That's, that's always depressing. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, I, I do, I picked, handpicked the team that's working on it, um, and I feel really good about them. So that counts for a lot. So you're rereading The Amber Spyglass, too, the oh, Philip Pullman, yes. which, which, of course, is the third book in the series. Yeah. So when you're rereading it, did you skip the, 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 no, that no, one's I read your the favorite? No, the first two, too. Oh, okay, okay, yes. okay. Um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of rereading actually this year and rereading is something that I rarely do because I'm not like, I mean, my, my husband will rewatch movies all the time and reread books. And for me, it's like, there's so many books I want to read, but, um, for books that really like stick to my soul, it's almost like I have to go back to their waters to like drink again and, and feel that nourishment. So, um, the His Dark Materials um, trilogy by Philip Pullman. Has anybody read that series? Um, some hands. That, that Those books were just absolutely arresting to me as a teen, as a preteen. And I hadn't read them. I think I had read... So my favorite one is the first one, just because I love the Arctic and the witches. And I read that one a second time, but I hadn't read them all together a second time. So I did that this year. And then I'm also currently rereading the Harry Potter books. I'm kind of going big into the like comfort food YA right now. And your favorite one of those is? Uh, well, I have to see what my favorite one is this time around. <laughs> I remember loving three, four, and five. And I'm on three. So, mm. I'm, so it's fun because I'll be like, oh, I can see why I would have really loved that. But... Um, yeah, can anybody pick one? Can you pick one? I think I was Prisoner of Azkaban guy. That's the one I'm on. Yes, no, that, yeah. that's... Mm-hmm. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. Order of the Phoenix, no, that's, they, that's the one that they're arguing with each other all the time. They just, I felt uncomfortable throughout the entire book. Oh, <laughs> don't give it away. I haven't remembered that much. <laughs> but then the fourth is so fun because you have the... That is the first one I read, so yes. Now, that, that has a the, special place in my heart. You first read the fourth? Yes, because, well, because I'm old, see. So, <laughs> you had time. <laughs> well, it, it, it didn't, it was, I think it was the fourth one, it was the first one when, now my wife uh, was, was on to it early, but it, it, I think Harry, this was early 2000s, and it was sort of like, like Harry, that it became sort of a, a cultural phenomenon at that point, so all right, all right, I got to check this out. So that was the first one I read, was, hmm. uh, was some, wait, oh, Goblet of Fire. Yeah. And then, then I went back and then got caught up. Oh, they're so good. They're just so, 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 so good. I just read them smiling. I've got some great questions, and we've got time for these. All right. I'm a junior here at UW-Madison. Even though I'm pre-med during free time, I've been writing, idea- I've, I've been writing ideas for a potential future first book. What advice and resources do you recommend for future young aspiring writers? Hmm. Well, it's nice to meet you. I don't know where you are, but I wish you the best of luck. I love talking to young writers because I remember that so well myself. Um, What I tell people is 
First of well, two things, and they both sound simple, but they're actually not. The first one is read, 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 read. Um, readers were my first creative writing teachers before I could ever take a class and they continue to be. I couldn't take creative writing until college. And so in high school, I would read and notate. My books are covered in annotations. I do a little bit less now, but even now, if it's a book that I can tell I can get a lot out of, I'm annotating. Um, and try on tones, try on styles. I've written horrible Raymond Carver knockoffs and, you know, never want anybody to see them again, but it's just try to get somebody's voice in your, in your hands and, and play around until you start to notice what stands out about your own voice, kind of what, what's the direction that you go naturally or, or the, um, sort of the frequency when you're writing is most powerful or effective. Um, and the second one is to write, to do a lot of writing. Um, I put a lot of pressure on myself for everything I write to be good, and that's a terrible way of being in the world as a writer. Uh, I think it's so much more important to cultivate a sense of experimentation, especially as a young writer. Um, because the fact is, even if your intent is for everything you write to be good, it certainly won't be. Um, that's just a delusion that you <laughs> have or, or hope will be true. So um, letting yourself play, uh, following where your passion is, don't feel like you need to show it to anybody. I think because MFAs have become more popular, um, people can sometimes feel this pressure like I should be publishing already. I should be sending out short stories. I should be, I'm, I'm behind. Um, and you're not behind. I think in some ways I went faster than I needed to. Um, so I think just give yourself the time and space to fall in love with reading and writing as I'm sure you already have as a child or, um, in your teens, but, but let that continue to flourish because writing is a job sometimes, but you never want to forget what brought you to it. Um, so, and, and the other thing I would say is seek out literary community. Um, Madison is such a wonderful place to be because there's readings all the time, um, especially at Room of One's Own, Mystery to Me, um, and there's also an organization called All that is in Atwood um, that's less um, kind of connected to the university and more um, community members. And there's a, there's a real poetry um, community within All. There's also a visual arts community. So you might find events where they have, um, there's a gallery up and you can walk around and then there's a poetry reading in the next room and bring a friend and meet people and stuff like that can be really exciting. Um, the last thing I would say is that if you um, haven't taken creative writing classes at school, I would definitely do that if you can. Um, you'll probably be taught by one of the fellows or MFAs who are people who are getting their advanced degree in that subject. And they love teaching those classes because it's like they get to geek out and talk about, you know, like sentence structure and form and character work. So they tend to be really fun classes with younger professors who are just 
really happy to be there. Um, and if for some reason you can't take any classes at UW, um, they have there are places in town that offer feedback for writers. Um, the Madison Writers Studio in particular is run by two authors who live in town, Michelle Wilgen and Susanna Daniel. They're both really established writers and they have all kinds of courses that range from um, write a novel in a year to um, something on revising. And I, I can't even, I'm not up on all of their current course offerings, but money would be an issue there. But if you're somebody who feels like I already do a lot of reading and writing um, and I do get out to um, to events but I really want some way to stay accountable and then lastly sorry I'm thinking of so many more ideas um, if you want to be held accountable but you don't want to um, make a financial commitment um, for the writing studio form a writing group this is something that people do just like a book group um, and some people find it really useful. It could be four people, it could be three, it could be six. And the idea is usually that once a month, the group will gather and read somebody's pages. So you wouldn't send in, you know, a hundred pages probably, unless your group is really game and <laughs> doesn't mind. Um, but that's another nice way to have a sense of accountability and support and input on your writing. Cool. I think I've got time for two more here. Uh, do you ever think of different ways you might have written certain certain parts of books, or, you know, or is, is 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 it done when it's done, and you you, mm. you don't you don't you don't look back and, and wish it had been been some some other way? Um, I think it's done when it's done, unless it's done poorly. <laughs> like if I I'd love to not go back because I'd love to nail it. I mean, when when I say not go back, I'm still going to be editing this thing like for the rest of my life, I mean, until it comes out for years. Um, but just if I don't have to make major structural changes, then awesome. But I certainly have never gotten through a book without having to do that. It's just part of the process. And this is why you have a publisher. I sometimes hear um, people ask me, what I think about self-publishing and I think it really depends on people's goals if what you want is to quickly get your work out in a format where people can buy it then and you don't care you know necessarily how many people are going to be buying it then I think it can be really viable um, but what working with a traditional publisher offers is the kind of um, handed down knowledge that um that makes publishing a collaborative experience, as we talked about earlier. Um, there's a reason why editors are so good at what they do. It's because they have keen eyes and a lot of insight when it comes to craft, things that the author might blow through or just um, not be able to see because you're too close to the work. So everybody has a different role, and um, I've benefited immensely from um, being able to say, I know that I don't know everything. Um, let me trust you. There are a couple of people asked about to, to describe your, 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 your daily writing process. Mm -hmm. Well, right now it's a little bit up in the air. Um, ideally, my writing process is that I get up and um, I'm working by um, nine or so and work for a few hours and then 
take lunch. And then in the afternoon, um, I might research or do interviews, um, surely run errands. It's kind of like my, I think the morning time is when I like to be really um, rigid with myself. But I've noticed that that was the way I would always work when I was writing my first two books. Um, And now that my my time is so different, different things are working that didn't work before. Like previously, I would only write in the morning if I was churning out new material. And now I find, I've found that I can sometimes write better in the afternoon or evening. Um, and previously I would only write in coffee shops because I needed the external stimulation. Although I would always use earplugs and I highly recommend earplugs because I cannot shut out the, the noise. Um, and lately I've been working more at home because ironically, even with earplugs, it's just been too much. So I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to sort of get my footing after such an incredible but very transformative and overwhelming year, and that includes my writing schedule. Okay, last question. How do I become a character in one of your books? <laughs> That's amazing. I've never heard of that question before. Wow. That's very hard to, I mean, you could have a really interesting name because writers are often on the hunt for great names. Um, I love that. It's Nicholas Nickleby in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I feel like the way it works is more often the, the opposite where like you had this fascinating conversation with someone and you're like, they'll never read the book. It's fine. <laughs> and then <laughs> you get the email through your website. <laughs> oh, so I see you remembered the talk we had on December 12th. <laughs> so I don't think I've had anybody ask me how they could be. Um, but then, you you know, what if I didn't portray you the way you like? It, there's all kinds of sticky stuff. So you're probably better off just not <laughs> wanting it. But I'm honored. Great question. <laughs> Chloe, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Everyone, please give her a big round of applause. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for listening to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. More episodes will be coming out shortly. In the meantime, do check out our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Those include Wedge Issues, The Corner Table, and The Mad Splainers. You can find those and Live from Cap Times Idea Fest at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or just about anywhere else you can find podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back real soon. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.